Recovery Elevator, episode 68. Didn't have to get that bad, but I was so stubborn. And by the time, and once I got physically dependent on it, it was just like air for me. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober for one year, eight months, three weeks, one day, 49 minutes and 32, 33, 34 seconds. On today's podcast, we've got Matt. He's been sober since December 11th, 2015. He's actually the fourth lawyer we've had on the podcast, and he's from the Dakotas. Before we get any further, let's learn about Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE for $10 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. If you'd like to support the Recovery Elevator podcast, you can do so by shopping on Amazon. Use the link recoveryelevator.com forward slash Amazon. Make all your purchases there. And that's all you got to do. I'd like to thank Ty, who edits the podcast, for sending me an article which gave me the idea for today's podcast. It's an article in The Fix by Regina Walker called My Top 5 Female Recovery Memoirs. The memoirs will be listed in the show notes at recoveryelevator.com, episode 68. However, what really caught my attention in this article was how the stigma is even worse for these alcoholics, dot, 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 are you ready for it? Women. I never thought of it. But yeah, it's the stigma that makes so many of us reach the most acute point in our disease before reaching out for help, aka the bottom. Yes, alcoholism addiction is a disease. Unlike other diseases, at the first sign of the onset of a disease, people reach out for help. With alcoholism, that's not the case. We usually end up waiting till help reaches us. Sometimes we're not alive when that help reaches us, though. Okay, in this article, it talks about a study that was done in Germany. Statistically, women don't recover from alcoholism at nearly the rate that men do. A study in Germany concluded that alcoholism was twice as fatal for women as for men. Holy shit. The women in the German study with alcohol addiction were five times more likely to die during the 14-year period of the study than women in the general population. Holy fuck. That sucks. The article continues to state, as a culture, we often judge women with addiction issues far more harshly than we do with men. Alcohol advertising often portrays men drinking as a bonding experience, while portraying women who drink as sexual predators, or at the very least, sexually objectified, as if to say, she's going to get drunk, she's just asking for it. Though it's difficult for anyone with a substance abuse issue to ask for help, it is that much more difficult for a woman who often bears an additional gender-specific stigma. Wow, I had never realized that, but that makes a lot of sense. Ladies, I can speak with first-hand experience and say, this stigma sucks. It's brutal. It nearly killed me. Seriously. 
I guess I can see how traditionally it's more accepted for a bunch of guys to get totally wasted at a bachelor party or something like that. And then when you hear the same thing for women, it's kind of frowned upon. And statements like that coming from my mouth aren't helping the stigma either. Simply acknowledging this fact, which really I had no idea previously to this, I thought this was an equal opportunity stigma, but in reality, that's not the case. I also feel it would be safe to say that women face different triggers than men do. I remember checking out at Costco a couple weeks ago, and there was a mom behind me with like three kids in the shopping cart. Well, I take that back. One was in the shopping cart. The other one was doing circles around the shopping cart. The kid inside the shopping cart jumped out. And the third one was trying to order something at the snack bar with only a nickel. That right there would have made me drink in a second. So ladies, my hat's off to you. Women wear a lot of hats and they do it very well. In the article, it also talks about five memoirs of women who are in recovery. These are all great reads. And links to these can be found at the recoveryelevator.com website, episode 68 show notes. One of them is Turnaround by Jean Kirkpatrick. Another one is called Smashed, Story of a Drunken Childhood by Corin Zalekis. The next one is called Blackout Girl, Growing Up and Drying Out in America by Jennifer Storm. Another one is Drunk Mom by Joita Bidlowski. The last one she mentions is Yellowtail by Tiffany Goik. Okay, and now let's hear from our interviewee, Matt. Matt, how are you? I'm good, Paul. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for asking. Let's jump right into it. Matt, how long have you been sober? Oh, I'd have to look at my phone, but it's about 165-ish days. It was December 11th, 2015 was my last drink. So December 11th, 2015. Congratulations, Matt. Getting sober is difficult, but getting sober in the middle of the gauntlet of the holidays is even harder. So nice job on that. And before we get any further, let's give listeners a little background about yourself, Matt. Maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, are you married, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun okay yeah i uh, well i'm from watertown south dakota i was born uh, may 14th 1984 i'm 32 years old i am a lawyer by trade and i'm a uh, self-employed lawyer at the moment which has its ups and downs especially trying to get sober but i have a wife and a son uh, who's 18 months uh, he will be 18 months here pretty soon his name is bennett and we have a child on the way and went to school down in Nebraska out of high school, and then I went to law school in Minneapolis, and then I moved to western South Dakota for a while, and then I moved back to my hometown of Watertown. I've lived here for three and a half, four years now. What do you like to do for fun, Matt? Oh, yeah, that thing. I I enjoy, uh, in the summertime, the few months of the year we actually have here, there, there's uh, you know, enjoyable outdoor weather. I, I play a lot of golf, and in the wintertime, up until 165 days ago, I drank a lot. And frankly, what I've done for fun for a lot of years till I've gotten sober has been drinking. It didn't really matter what I was doing. Golf really allows for me to drink a lot. So uh, this summer so far has been, I've only played golf four or five times, and it's been an interesting experience playing golf sober for the first time since I was probably 18 years old. Yeah. Do you find the game is easier, harder, or you're like, whoa, uh, golf is hard in general? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So far, I would say... You know, I haven't played as much because we haven't had a very, our, our spring's been pretty cold and rainy so far, so I haven't played that much. But, you know, the first couple times out were, I would say, fairly difficult. You know, I, I wasn't like 
reaching for a drink or craving a drink necessarily, but you know, it's just those times when I always would drink that you kind of, you kind of have to catch yourself once in a while. And I would say the actual game of golf so far has indicated that it's a little bit more, a little bit more difficult. I had a friend uh, growing up, I used to work at the golf course and he'd always come in and he'd, he'd call it his OBL, his optimum beer level. <laughs> and, and so, and there actually is a point I would, I would, argue that there is a point of diminishing your turns at some point, but up to a certain point, a little amount of alcohol actually makes you a little better golfer because you're more relaxed and you lose your inhibitions like alcohol, like that's what alcohol does to you. And so there's a certain point, which I never stayed at, of course, but there's a certain point that I think that uh, alcohol actually makes you a little more relaxed. So I just gotta, I just gotta be better about uh, finding alternative ways to stay relaxed and, you know, I'm not a competitive golfer anymore. I used to be a competitive golfer. You know, I used to be you know, high school, college, stuff like that. But now I'm just a uh, play on league and that sort of thing. So, Sure. It's right around like the second hole. You probably hit that optimal level. And if you look at your scorecard, yeah. it's like, man, I'm great on that second hole. And after that, it just all goes to shit. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's awesome. And oh, so we can oh, so we can swear on the podcast. I was kind of refraining, so. Well, you know, I mean, we, we try to eliminate <laughs> like, like the F-bombs and stuff. But No, uh, I'm just kidding. Yeah, let's talk about the podcast title, Recovery Elevator. Did your elevator yeah. hit its bottom on December 11th? What made you decide to quit drinking? Yes, it did. Well, I uh, I really didn't have another option. I mean, I it was either that or I was probably going to die. I mean, I don't think I would have. I was. I got to the point. I was the kind of alcoholic that um, it took me to the brink. You know, I I probably could have called myself an alcoholic from when I was. You know, looking back at my drinking now, I probably could have called myself an alcoholic when I was 16 years old, but I was a high-functioning alcoholic. Once I became of age to buy my own alcohol, I essentially drank every day, and I actually went to treatment for the first time three and a half years ago, stayed sober for a while, started to drink again, and drank every single day for two and a half more years. That was a 30-day inpatient treatment, okay. yep, and I, I, I got to the point last last March, about a year and a couple months ago, I quit my my regular job, I quit my, the job that paid me on a regular basis at an insurance company to start my own law firm. And at that point, I think Paul, you and I had maybe briefly touched on this before we were talking about how it, it really, it sped up my, my road to recovery, I think, because had I not quit my job in March, I probably would still be working there, miserable, drunk at night, hung over every morning. But what quitting my job allowed me to do was drink as much as I wanted whenever I wanted. And you know, my wife would go to work. I'd go to the liquor store. And so, you know, to answer your question, I guess, on December 11th or December 7th is actually when I would say I made the decision to quit drinking. Or no, the, let's see, the, the 8th, excuse me. The Tuesday, the 8th, is when I made the decision to quit drinking. I didn't have my last drink till the 11th. But on the 8th, I, I made some calls. And the next day, I tried to go to an AA meeting. And that didn't, uh, I went to that drunk at noon. And the intention was to go to another one at 5.15. I woke up I woke up from a long nap, and I could not drink. And at that point, I knew that just going to AA and trying to stop on my own without, you know, basically without being removed from society for a while probably wasn't going to work for me. So I made the difficult decision at that point that I was going to have to leave during the holidays because I, I could barely eat anymore, frankly. And I just knew that uh, I was physically weak whether I was drinking or not drinking. I just got to the point where I, it was going to kill me. So on the 11th of December, there was one bed left in the treatment center. Thank God. My mom took me down there on the 11th, and that was the day. Yeah, nice job. You reached out on the 8th and made that call asking for help, and that's the day that I got sober too, not on that same day, but this when I made that call 
it was about three or four days later after that I got sober as well. And and listeners, yeah. this is strikingly clear now after interviewing 70 alcoholics is that our stories are very similar. And you mentioned, yeah. Matt, that one of the best things that happened to you is you quit your job and you sped up the process. You were a, you're starting your own law firm. You're basically self-employed, which is dangerous for an alcoholic. And the guy I interviewed at his name's Buddy. He uh, at 7 a.m. this morning. That's what he said. The same thing. I asked him a question. I said, "What advice could you give to your younger self?" And basically, it was like, "Well, Buddy, start drinking right now and speed this process up because we can't skip." any of the destinations on this pathway, the journey to sobriety, but we can speed it up. And the best thing that happened to me was when I went to Spain and owned the bar for three years, I sped that process up tremendously because I blacked out five to seven nights a week for three years. And, and talk to me about that. Do you feel like, you know, when you quit that job, you sped the process up? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was working, I'd get up every day feeling like crap. I would, uh, I couldn't really eat anything till early afternoon. By late in the day, I would uh, start feeling a little better, but not great. And I knew that what would make me feel better was some drinks. And so five o'clock would come and I'd immediately be at the bar and I'd have a few drinks at the bar, but I was always real cautious to try to be at least. And then I'd go home and, and finish the job and do it all again the next day. So then the, uh, I'll never forget it. I mean, the first day I didn't have to go into work. I I poured myself a drink about 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock in the morning because that's what felt right. It felt like it'd be, hey, I celebrate for a little bit here with my not being, you know, not being employed and starting my new firm. I'll drink a little bit. And uh, and then it just kept, it just got worse and worse and worse. And uh, basically by the end, I ran out of hours in the day to drink, you know. So yeah, I definitely sped the process up because it allowed me to hit my, you know, God willing, my, my bottom uh, much quicker. Absolutely. And I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked Buddy in the interview before this is what advice would you give to your younger self? You know, what? he had a pretty, he kind of hit, hit the nail on the head, I think a little bit. I mean, I, I wouldn't trade anything that happened to me. I mean, I don't know. What advice would I give to my younger self? I answered these questions, and that's where I got these from, and, and my advice yep. would, was, Paul, stop banging your head against the wall. Stop coming up with these brilliant ideas to find ways to drink like a normal person and just surrender. No, I think that's right. I mean, uh, the problem I have with, with my drinking is that, for example, there's a person I know here in town who's nine years sober, and she had a relapse, and that first night she got arrested and went to jail. Wow. Well, for me, it's like if I, I knew if I was going to drink tonight, I would probably lock myself in the basement, throw my car. I mean, I, I was never, I got to be a, I, I didn't drive that much. I, early on in my drinking, I did drive drunk a lot, but recently I have not been. And so I fight it. I mean, I really fight it. And so if I were to start drinking today, it probably would take me another, well, who knows? It might take me a year this time to get back to that bottom, but I fight alcoholism so hard. And, and the problem is that I, in the last two and a half years I drank, there was definitely, there were some decent times. There was, it got worse and worse and worse, but there were some decent times where my wife and I, you know, our honeymoon and all that stuff, alcohol, I mean, a honeymoon was great because it's normal to drink in the morning on your honeymoon, you know, because it was like yeah. these, uh, all you can drink places. And so that was great for me because uh, everybody's drinking mimosas in the morning. I wasn't the only one. But I don't know, that's a hard one because I wouldn't trade anything I've done. I, I mean, I, there's there's some financial decisions I certainly wish I would have done differently, some schooling decisions on, on that sort of thing. But I probably, uh, I don't think I'd trade anything that I've done right now. 
Absolutely. In in every step in my journey, I wouldn't trade for anything because I had to go through that stuff. And Matt, talk to me about your drinking habits. How much did you drink before December 11th? And did you ever try to put plans in place to moderate or, or you know control your levels of drinking? Oh, yeah. Like I did the uh, towards the end. I don't know, probably about, I think I was still working at the time. I tried to do a spreadsheet. You know, I tried to get an Excel spreadsheet going where I where I would start with so many drinks, and that would be my taper schedule, and that lasted about three days or two days. Oh, I've never heard the Excel spreadsheet. That's great. Oh, yeah, Excel spreadsheet. That really didn't last very long. My drinking, my, my alcoholism was very progressive. I mean, I in high school when I started to drink, it was like one night a week. We would uh, basically get blackout drunk on Saturday nights, and then otherwise that was it. Um, college was basically blackout two to three nights a week, but then study my ass off from Sunday to Wednesday and get real drunk Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Then once I turned 21, I basically thought I had arrived, like Bill Bill says in his story in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, that I had arrived, and I had an internship at an accounting firm making sixteen fifty an hour. I lived off campus for the first time. I had I bought some nice clothes, and all of a sudden I'm like, hey, this is it. You know, I'm 21 years old. I could buy my booze. I started drinking scotch and wine and shit like that. And so it, it, my my drinking just really progressed, and it, it was it was daily. It was almost daily. I could probably count on I don't know. It's probably less than a month of my life since I was 21 total days that I haven't drank. And you know, there was a period in there was a period in law school where I had a girlfriend and kind of had some other things taken off, kind of pulled me away from that my focus on drinking, I guess, for a little while. But I quickly found my way back to it. Towards the end of my drinking while I was still working, I'd, I'd get off work, go have four or five, like, 16-ounce uh, beers at a bar. Uh, that's probably too much. You know, I was still okay to drive in my head, at least, probably not legally. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'd get home, and then I'd drink liquor the rest of the night, usually. I, I always kept a, uh, I kept a bottle in the freezer, like something I could shoot. So I'd always kind of go to the kitchen, I'd make, make cocktails, and then I, as I was making my cocktails getting ice, I'd pull off this bottle of Fireball whiskey or something like that. You know, when I quit my job, I didn't, I was kind of, I wasn't really drinking beer much anymore. Uh, I really just didn't do the trick for me. And so I, uh, I started drinking vodka in the summertime last summer. And, and then the, I kind of drank with the seasons, you know, and, uh, and then as, as winter and fall came, I started drinking darker whiskey and, and whatnot. And, you know, towards the end, it was just like a, you know, if you want to, I can talk amounts if you want. I mean, I was basically going through a half gallon of whiskey every 24 hours. Wow. I was, uh, I mean, I was on the road, like I said, I mean, I was damn near, and, and it's one of those things where it didn't have to get that bad, but I was so stubborn. And by the time, and once I got physically dependent on it, it was just like air for me. You know, I needed it to live. I mean, I'd wake up in the morning. If I knew there was just a little bit left in that bottle, I'd be anxious till my wife left for work and I could go to the liquor store and, and re- get a new bottle. And, uh, you know, without, I wasn't measuring shots by any means. I was just dumping a bunch of whiskey into a big, 16 ounce glass, putting a little Coke or water on top and, and drinking it basically all day. And so I wasn't really getting that drunk anymore. I was just kind of like always, I always had alcohol in my system. And I'd get up in the middle of the night even sometimes and take a couple shots of something and chase it with milk and go back to bed because I didn't want to crack a pop so my wife would wake up. So my drinking has been very progressive. And, and you know, before the first time I went to treatment, my, my drinking was completely different from the second time I went to treatment. The first time, you know, I was out at the bars the night before knowing I was going to treatment the next day and I was, people were buying me shots. You know, I was still the life, trying to be the life of the party and telling everybody, oh, there's this cute girl I talked to on the phone that's going to be there and, and people are buying me <laughs> shots and all this stuff. And, 
and uh, I still like party. Yeah, exactly. And you know, and I live in a fairly small town of twenty thousand people, and things get around pretty fast. And damn near half the town, I bet knew I went to treatment the next day. Not really, but I mean, a large. I mean, I I got treatment. I got letters, like I got multiple letters every day of encouragement. Well, this time. I had basically secluded myself. I hadn't talked to my friends in a long time. I was depressed, and, and I just had me and my dog and the TV, basically. And then my wife would come home at night, and I'd pretend things were okay and progressing in my law practice, and they weren't. So that the the uh, two different paths that got me to treatment were, it's pretty astonishing, really, how different it was. Because, like I said, I was still active and out in the community. Not out in the community, but still out of the bars and stuff. And by the time I got to treatment this time, I hadn't been to a bar in, I don't know, six months. So... Yeah, just just me, my dog, and a bottle of whiskey. I think that's a Garth Brooks song, also. Yeah, that's or right. every other and country Donald song. Trump, and Donald Trump was on TV too, so it was like it was like me and my dog and a bottle of whiskey, and I'd swear at Donald Trump. That was like my daily routine. That's a Brad Paisley song, right there. That's, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, and let's talk about when the rubber hits the road. But before we do that, you mentioned something earlier where you got to a point where you didn't have another option, and this is at the bottom for a lot of people, and it's and it's a gift of desperation. However, I think you did have an option, Matt. You had an option to continue drinking. And unfortunately, you you and I, Matt, were the lucky ones. A lot of people don't take the decision and don't make the choice that you made to seek out help. And congratulations for that. We wouldn't be having this podcast interview and we both know where that goes. Your your appetite just disappears and eventually you can just drink yourself to death. And so let's talk about how did you do it? You went to rehab. How did you do it? Talk to us about that. Talk to us about when you got out. How'd you do it? Well, I went back to the same treatment center that I went to the first time. And it's a place that they, they like to refer to themselves more as a retreat. Um, in fact, it's based on it. They founded this place about 10 years ago. It's called Tallgrass Recovery, uh, just south of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. It's in T, South Dakota. And it's kind of based on a, a place in Minnesota called The Retreat. And the model is it's not medical, and so you don't have to fill out a bunch of, like, am I an alcoholic forms, like, go through this psychological bullshit. It's basically like, okay, I got here, and I obviously have a problem or I wouldn't be here, so I need to know how do I live without alcohol. And so it's full of people that have done that. It's everybody that works there is not are not clinical psychologists. They're all in recovery themselves. Sure. It's a, it's a small facility. It's 14 people. But anyway, so I went to this, the same place and they had added some different components and they hadn't, we really hadn't done last time, some med, more meditation, stuff like that. And I really sing the praises of this place. They really, they helped me a lot. Once I got out, unlike the first time I got out, well, the, the first time I just wasn't ready, the bottom, that was the bottom line. But this time I, I knew my life depended on, on staying sober and my life depended on working an active recovery program. And so I got an, I got an AA sponsor uh, right away, actually while I was still in treatment, which I didn't do the first time. I made it a point to continue my schedule almost to a T besides having to work in, in the middle of some of that. But I went to like two, uh, two meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous almost every day for the first few weeks. I got, I got up in the morning before everybody else in my house got up and meditated and prayed and did my daily readings. And at night I would do the daily the reflection on the, on looking back on the day uh, from the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I did that pretty, pretty well right away. Uh, I will admit though, there was some time, there was a, a month or two there right around. Well, actually when I was going to come out to Bozeman and visit Pete, uh, it was kind of in the midst of some 
some pretty crazy time actually. Like I, I had kind of gotten away from my structure. I'd started to get busier at work and I started sleeping more. And so basically instead of getting up at four thirty or five doing my stuff, I'd get up at six and then the day would start. I would, so I would kind of got away from some of that stuff. I was having some sponsorship issues. My sponsor's dad died, stuff like that. So there was just, there was a period in there where I was, my wife, my wife would probably rather, would have rather had me drinking than being sober because I was kind of bat, bat shit crazy, basically. But I've gotten back to a more stable point. And just frankly, there's gotten more time, you know, more time under my belt. My body's starting to, I think, come back into some sort of equilibrium a little bit. Anyway, so that's what I've done. I mean, I've gone to, I'm still very active in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I probably go to, I go, I for sure go to four meetings a week right now, sometimes more, but I for sure have four meeting commitments that I go to, that I go to, um, me and a girl just started a morning meeting if there hadn't been around here a few weeks ago. So we do that. What, I, what time is that uh, morning meeting? 6.30 on Monday morning. It was this morning, 6.30 on Monday mornings. Nice. And then, you know, I, I uh, you know, social media is great and stuff like this. You know, I've actually, I did, I did a radio show for the treatment center that I went to, I did a radio interview down in Sioux Falls a couple months ago telling my story. And, and I've been, I go down there, frankly, about, it's about an hour and 20 minutes, hour and a half away. So I get down there probably at least once a week to just kind of hang out. Cause you can kind of be down there if you're an alumni and be around. And I stay very connected to that community. And so, yeah, that's, that, those are some of the things I've been doing. I, I have started to incorporate some exercise, some meditate, you know, more meditation, kind of learning more about the meditation aspect and exploring different different avenues of, of meditation and mindfulness and, and just trying, basically finding healthy alternatives, you know, um, trying to structure my day, keeping to my plan of my day and, and not letting things get me off course and that sort of thing. So that's what I've, that's what I've done so far. Matt, we both know alcoholism, it's a three-part disease. There's the physical component, the spiritual component, and the mental component. And what you just said with your recovery portfolio, it sounds like you're touching points to address all three of those issues. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I'll admit on the physical part, I've been lacking. (laughs) But uh, I mean, physically, like I think I'm recovering physically from alcoholism, but I've kind of gotten away from some of the exercise I was doing. I'm trying to get back into it, but, but yeah, yes, I, I think that makes perfect sense. Yep. Yeah. Cause I was just a dry drunk. My first time getting sober, I was sober for 2.5 years nearly. And all I was addressing was the physical components of alcoholism. My body without drinking just naturally healed itself. Our body is a remarkable piece of chemistry and it healed itself. Um, I didn't really change my diet. I just stopped ingesting the poison, the toxin called alcohol. And physically, I felt the best I ever felt in my entire life. Mentally and spiritually, on the other hand, I was still batshit crazy to quote you from earlier. And and that is untreated alcoholism to the core is I wasn't like you said, you're, you're going down doing radio shows. You're meeting uh, with the people at the, it was tall grass uh, retreat center. Um, you're addressing the other issues and the other components. I think that is awesome. Um, and Matt, let's get started with the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. Why not? Let's uh, let's give it a go. Uh, yeah, I've been doing recovery since uh, six a.m. this morning, so let's just keep this party going. All right. Uh, All right. Yeah. Number one, Matt. What was your worst memory from drinking? Oh man, it would have to be. 
I would, I would say it has to be the hospital stay. I mean, that was the scariest for me. I don't know if I mentioned that yet, but I, I had to go to the hospital and do a pretty intensive detox. You know, there were some, yeah, there were some times throughout, I can look back for the last 15 years and pick out some bad moments, going to jail, stuff like that. But I would say sitting in that hospital bed and having a doctor tell me that I could die of a seizure in the next 24 to 48 hours is probably my worst memory. Wow. And next question, we've all heard of the aha moments. Did you ever have an oh shit moment when you realized that you can't control your drinking? I would say my oh shit moment was about the time I surrendered. You know, it was it was like, oh shit, this really is going to, this could get me. You know, this could kill me if I don't do something about it right now. I would say that was my, that was my oh shit moment because I, I you know, up until that point, I still had designs and thoughts and hopes that maybe I'll wake up tomorrow and get, you know, maybe I'll wake up tomorrow and I won't crave alcohol, but that never happened. Yep, didn't happen for me either, Matt. Next question. No. Matt, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? I intend to continue to be active in Alcoholics Anonymous. I intend to uh, just join the meditation group, uh, this class here in town. So I, I plan to kind of grow that aspect of me. I'd like to lose some weight, frankly. I don't really say one do, do one thing at a time, but I want to start feeling better about myself. I've kind of let myself uh, eat a lot of ice cream and a bunch of sweets early on in recovery because, you know, I'm replacing that sugar. So I want to get more physically fit. And then I also, I want to help other people. I really, I really do. I like doing this stuff. I think for me, the foundation of my recovery is going to be helping other people because if I'm, if I'm in my head too long, it's not a very good place to be. Being of service is a great spot to be. And next question, Matt, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Oh, I would say relax and take it easy. The, uh, that's from the big book. And there was just a while there where I, you know, these last few months, I've, you know, you basically, I've had all this lost time, so I'm trying to make up for lost time. And I would say that, uh, just relax, take it easy. Don't drink. You know, it's, it's things will come in their due time. Um, a lot of, at least for me, I, I was trying to get everything overnight. I was, I thought for a while, I thought I was going to write a book on how to like my first hundred days. Well, now I realize I should write a book on how not to do the first hundred days. <laughs> so I, I, I would say relax and take it easy is one of the best pieces of advice that I've, I've received thus far. Speaking maybe some of the advice that would be in that book, what advice can you give to listeners who are thinking about getting sober? Well, I would say just, I mean, just to reach out, you, know, you don't have to make a huge, it doesn't have to be a huge decision right away. You don't have to abruptly stop. I mean, anybody that's working an active AA program or actively doing this thing, in this thing called recovery is going to understand that people aren't going to be able to quit right away necessarily, but just start exploring. I would say you can find tons of resources online and try to identify instead of not identify where I went wrong the first time around trying to get sober was every time I heard a story, I picked out something that was not like me. If you're seriously thinking about trying to get sober, yeah, try to find similarities. And if you can start finding similarities, just listen, no, just listen, 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 because you'll start hearing things that start to make sense. That's what I would suggest. I love it. And before we go, Matt, we got one last question. Do you have your own personalized you might be an alcoholic if line? And just from hearing you, I can say you might be an alcoholic if you made your own Excel spreadsheet with formulas to tell you how to titrate and uh, you know to mark how much you've been drinking. So give listeners your own customers. Would, you might be an alcoholic if line. You might be an alcoholic if you get up in the morning and you check your eyes, the whites of your eyes for yellow. And if they're not yellow yet, you think it's okay to keep drinking. Boom. 
nailed it. Not hard to find those. Some are funny, some are sad, but you know what? It's in the past. You can't forget it. The incredible short memory will actually bite you in the butt in the long run. Matt, thank you so much for joining me today and helping me stay sober. Thank you. You bet, Paul. Thank you. My brother is getting married next weekend. Thank you, Marco, for appeasing mom's constant drilling of, when are you guys going to get married? It only took you 36 years, Mark, and for me, according to the previous podcast episode, it might be a little longer than age 36 for me due to my current inability to form a true partnership. So I've got my brother's wedding coming up next Sunday. Actually, this podcast will come out a day after the wedding. I'm going to go to my best friend's wedding. I'm going to be his best man, and I'm going to be sober. I'm also going to give a best man speech sober. Now, a little bit about me, I've DJed a lot of weddings. I've got a mobile DJ entertainment business here in Montana. We've got about 120 weddings scheduled on the books alone this summer. Usually the response when I approach the maid of honor and the best man saying, hey, are you guys ready for the for the toast? Are you ready for your best man speech? Usually what I see is they're like, uh, yeah, h- hang on one second. They reach for anything in front of them that contains alcohol and they just start chugging. Doesn't matter if it's Coors Light or a martini, they just start chugging. Probably to take a little bit of the edge off. From my experience, those drinks don't help much. I've seen some rough best man and maid of honor speeches. So hopefully mine doesn't suck, because A, I'm going to be sober, and B, I've heard about 200 speeches, so I know what not to say and what to avoid. But it's refreshing knowing that when I get into a situation where I've got to be on point, I'm going to be talking in front of a lot of people, I don't need to resort to a liquid, a substance, a drug to make me more comfortable. I want to take a deep breath, look at my brother, and speak from the heart. Actually, I'm going to give you a snippet of what I'm going to say because this comes out after the wedding. I got this idea from a wedding I did a couple of years ago, and I loved it. So when I start my speech, I'm going to pull out a couple of post-it notes, unfold them, and say, to make sure I don't forget anything in this speech, I'm going to pull out some notes, and let's get it started. Uh, Mark is really fast. Mark is really good looking. Mark, it, Mark, I and then I'm going to look over to my brother and say, Mark, I can't read your handwriting. I'm sure this sounds pretty lame on the podcast, but in person, if I can pull it off correctly without the aid of alcohol, it should be pretty funny and merit some laughs. But then it's going to go on to talk about how my brother is always raising the bar. Damn it, Mark. You did it again. You married an amazing girl. I've got a poodle named Ben, but acceptance is the answer. And really, when I stopped comparing myself to people, to my brother, that's when life got a hell of a lot better. My brother, he's crushing it. He does very well professionally. He had a bachelor party in the middle of nowhere and 22 people came to it. He's an awesome guy. But seriously, I compared myself to him forever. Mark, you're the reason why I drank alcoholically for a decade. I'm just kidding. That's not the case. But it was right around a couple years ago when I started to realize, wait a second, maybe I'm the problem. Maybe it's not all those other external circumstances. Maybe I'm the problem, but hold on, here we go. Maybe I'm also the solution. Seriously, when I started to take a look at myself and stopped comparing myself to other people or blaming my problems on the weather, on the location, on the way people drive, that's when the rubber hit the road, pun intended. So I'm going to leave you guys with that one, Recovery Elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. 